your wrath completely satisfied. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. You know, there's sometimes things that happen in life that we just have a hard time wrapping our minds around. We know the truth of it, but Jesus satisfied God's wrath on my behalf. Nothing else could do that. Nothing else could satisfy the wrath of God except for the shed blood of his son on the cross of Calvary. So what a great response. Jesus, thank you. Sometimes thank you doesn't seem enough, and this is one of those times. So what do we do in response? We live our lives in a way that honors him and glorifies him. Um, Owen did respond. Uh, You probably can't see it very well, but here's a a picture of him holding the card that he got with a big smile on his face. If you want to see that afterward, uh, I'll show it to you on my phone. Uh, He's just a a great kid, and we we miss him, uh, but we we know that uh, his family is doing what God wants them to do out there in Ohio. So uh, you continue to pray for the Sears family as they adjust and get things uh, sorted out and situated out there and settled in and then get involved in ministry as well. Well, again, welcome to our services today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We are going to now open God's word together. That's uh, one of the greatest opportunities we have in our worship service. And we want to remind you that worship isn't just about singing songs, okay? Worship is the entire service, okay? And so as we continue in our worship this morning, we are going to uh, begin a new series because last week we finished the series in the, in Philippians, okay? And uh, I talked to the Petrellas yesterday. Uh, Wanda had a rough week, so you continue to pray for her, but she put, she put Mike on the spot. Okay, uh, she's, we were talking about the services and stuff like that, and so um, Mike says, well, I try to listen very hard to, to the preaching, and, and so Wanda says, well, what did Pastor talk about last week, Mike? Um, and so uh, Mike hit the nail on the head. He said, we finished out our study in the book of Philippians, enjoy, and so yeah, so we finished that out. We're going to start something new this morning, uh, but remember Philippians, it, and it's actually leading nicely into our study that we're starting this morning. Philippians is a book that reminds us as children of God, we have every reason to be joyful. No matter what's happening in life, no matter what's going on in our world, the circumstances that we find ourselves should not affect our joyfulness before the Lord. Now, yes, it may affect our happiness, but happiness and joy are not the same thing, okay? Joy is determined by where you will spend eternity, and you and I, because of the death of Christ on the cross of Calvary, which we celebrated in the Lord's Supper this morning, we know that we will spend eternity in the presence of God, and that brings us great joy. And no matter what we're going through, even no matter how long we're going through it here on earth, it will come to an end. It is temporary, but our joy is eternal. So Paul reminded us of that, how we should have joy in everyday life, no matter the struggles that we may face. And like the apostle Paul, he didn't have an easy life. I mean, he wrote the book of Philippians about joy from prison. So what does that tell us? Even amidst the difficulties, we should be joyful. 
This morning, we are starting a series in the book from another apostle of Jesus Christ, not the Apostle Paul. So that kind of narrows it down greatly, all right? Because uh, you think about all the books that the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament, okay? The book that we're going to study this morning is, was not written by the Apostle Paul. And while Paul gave us the key to joyful living, the start of our series this morning is going to focus on how to handle the struggles in the Christian life. Let me start with a question for you this morning. Is anyone struggling with something or someone this morning? I'm not going to ask you who, okay? I'm just going to ask you if. If you're facing a struggle in your life, in your world this morning, whether it's the kind of struggle that rocks your world or whether it's just one that kind of rumbles things around a little bit, are, are you struggling? Most of us would probably say yes. In fact, we know because we've been praying for several people who are working through struggles, right, Ramavus? Okay. Um, they had some flooding there, four feet of water in their basement in some places, three in others, and that's bad enough, but when all your stuff was just moved there the day before and put in there for storage? Uh, God, what are you doing? Makes you wonder, but we need to trust him. And as we've talked with the Ramavus, we've been convinced in their response is one that is appropriate and and God-honoring and it's stuff and God will replace it. By the way, I got some books for you. Um, So as we think about the struggles that we face, how do we as the children of God face those struggles? And by the way, we are in 2021, right? Something happened in 2020, you might know about it. Uh, It kind of rocked everyone's world and we're still dealing with it. We're still trying to figure out how to do life with the results some of the restrictions, some of the things that we don't like, we don't agree with, we don't want to do them. We're trying to figure all that out. It's a learning curve. And we're trying to honor the Lord in the process. So as we work through the struggles that we find ourselves in, isn't it good that the Bible gives us ways to handle struggle? So as we begin this study this morning, uh, we want to understand God has a plan for our lives, and even when that plan includes struggle, he hasn't forsaken us, he hasn't left us, but he has equipped us to deal with and handle those struggles. Now, we know that the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Philippians that we finished last week, we know that he was considered primarily the apostle to the Gentiles. And we know that Paul traveled extensively around the Roman world communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people of the known world at the time. The apostle that penned the book that we're going to start studying this morning is considered to be the apostles to the Jews, okay? So that should help you figure out maybe a little bit where we're going. The apostle to the Jews. That's not to say, though, that he did not minister at all to Gentiles because he did. Much like the apostle Paul, this apostle considered himself to be a staunch Jew, one with great respect for the ways of the Jews and the law of God. He tried hard to keep the law and testified of himself that no unclean food had ever crossed his lips. Getting closer, getting warmer, you know who we're going to look at this morning? This man who had been taught by Jesus was accustomed to the Lord stretching him as he more fully came to understand God's plan for his life. Perhaps one of the most stretching times in his life was when the Lord changed his name. Think about that. How, how would you handle that if, if God all of a sudden decided to change your name? This is the name that you grew up with, and he wasn't a young person. He was a, you know, an older guy, had a family, and God says, okay, I'm going to change your name. The first time he met him, God changed his name. 
Upon meeting this soon-to-be follower of his, Jesus called him by his given name and told him that he, who, he told him who he was. But then he says, from this point on, I'm going to call you this, okay? I'm going to change your, your name. And perhaps that name change was to signify the transformed life that would become this follower of Jesus as he began to become one who committed his ways to the things of the Lord. Let me read the name change exchange for you. And if you haven't figured out who we're talking about, by the time we're finished reading John chapter 1, verses 40 to 42, you'll know who it is. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew and Simon Peter's brother. His first, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas or Cephas, which is translated a stone. Okay. You're the Messiah, I guess we'll go with it. You know that I have a favorite website when we're talking about trying to figure out things in the scripture. There's a website called gotquestions.org. Uh, this gives some highlights of the Apostle Peter when talking about his name change. Let me read their comments for you. It says, in the New Testament, Jesus changed Simon Peter's name, meaning God has heard, to Peter, meaning rock. When he first called him as a disciple in John 1, it was Peter who declared that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of the living God, in Matthew 16. Jesus replied to him as Simon, son of Jonah, saying that he was blessed because God revealed Jesus' identity as Messiah to him. He then referred to him as Peter and said that Peter's declaration was the basis or the rock on which he would build his church. So do you think when Jesus changed his name to Cephas Stone, he was, he was just changing it because he thought, thought it sounded better? No, he knew that he was going to teach Peter and that he was going to make that statement upon you, Peter. Not Peter himself, but the statement that Peter made, that Jesus is the son of the living God. Upon that statement, I will build my church. Peter is also often seen as the leader of the apostles. Jesus occasionally called Peter Simon at other times. Why? Got questions, goes on to say, probably because Simon sometimes acted like his old self instead of the rock God called him to be. The same is true for Jacob. God called him Jacob to remind him of his past and remind him to depend on God's strength. Why did God choose new names for some people? The Bible doesn't give us his reasons, but perhaps it was to let them know that they were destined for a new mission in life. The new name was a way to reveal the divine plan and also to assure them that God's plan would be fulfilled in them. You know, there's a song that we sing sometimes. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. You and I have a new name as well. Now, God didn't change my name from Tim to something different, but you know what my new name is? And you know what your new name is? Son of God, daughter of God, child of God. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. By the great grace and great goodness and love of our God. You've got it. You know who we're talking about, right? We're going to start a series in the book that bears his name, 1 Peter, this morning. If you would take your copy of the scriptures and open with me to the book of 1 Peter, we will begin our study today talking about this man who is known to 
be a bit impetuous. People have described Peter as a guy who would open mouth to insert his foot. And the only time he opened his mouth after that was to exchange feet, people say. Okay? Um, Sometimes Peter spoke quickly and didn't really think through everything he was going to say. But you know what? He also became a man who God spoke through mightily as he allowed God to work in his life and work through him. Would you stand together? We're going to read just two verses this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It's up on the screen, so if you want to read along, that would be great. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Let's ask God to bless our time together as we look into his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you so much for your word. You spoke your word to holy men who would record it for our benefit, for us to learn and for us to to know how to live life. Father, we hold in our hands a copy of scripture that we believe you have reliably preserved so we can live life based on what you desire for us. Thank you for preserving for us your word. As we look into it this morning, help us to be mindful that these are not words of men, but they are, they are your words, words that we would do well to listen to, to adjust our life accordingly as we are confronted with the truths of Scripture. Thank you so much for Peter, the lessons that we learned from this man, who in many ways is like a lot of us are. Uh, Father, if you could use Peter, you can use us. What a great encouragement that is. Bless our time in your word this morning. Help us to learn from it. Help us to become more like our Savior because we've spent time here together worshiping you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. So we start off with the who of the book of 1 Peter. Who is Peter, who is writing the book? Peter is writing the book. Have you ever had anyone ask a question, who do you think you are? Or maybe you've asked such a question, who do you think you are? Okay, well, at the outset of this letter, Peter deals with those questions. First of all, he deals with who he is, and then he deals with who the readers of the book are. Okay, so who is Peter? Well, Peter is an apostle. Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Just what does it mean to be an apostle? Sometimes people ask me, Pastor, are there apostles today? And I can tell you a short answer is no. There are no apostles today. And as we understand why, you'll come to the conclusion, hopefully the same as me, that there are no apostles today because there were simply unique qualifications to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. As I said, in the simplest sense of the word, the apostle there, is no, there are no apostles today. It's the Greek word apostolos, which conveys the idea of someone who is a representative, a messenger, or an envoy of another. Well, you say, well, we have people all over the world that are envoys of the United States. Yes, but they are not apostles. Okay, you just look at their actions and you can tell many times that they're not apostles, even just because of the, the huge, ma- massive mistakes sometimes that are made because they're not considering the things of God. 
Okay, an envoy of Jesus Christ. In the biblical sense of the word, the word apostle were those divinely appointed founders of the, of the church. Those that Jesus used to build his church. The fact that Jesus said, I will build my church, he could have done it all by himself. But he called 12 men to be assistants in the, in the primary workers he would use, the human agents that he would use to build his church. The word apostle also means sent ones, ones that were sent out for a particular purpose, envoys of God commissioned by Jesus to start and establish his church, the very church that he and he alone said he would build and is continuing to build to the, today. You need to understand that God is still building his church today. The the moment he stops building his church will be when he takes us home to be with him. At at that event we call the rapture, it's the next thing on the calendar that we are looking forward to when God calls us home. But until that day, he's still building his church. He's still working through his church. He's still using his church. He's not finished with the church yet. There, has, there have been many discussions down through the times, even in the first century church. Are there apostles today? When did the apostles cease to be? Well, it's been the accepted belief and the accepted teaching of the evangelical church. Uh, that church, we, we as an evangelical church, not a new evangelical, but an evangelical church, strives to be a church that is committed to the word of God, committed to do what God commands us to do in the pages of Scripture. We believe that that book, this book, the the word of God, is our authority for faith and practice. That's the kind of church that we're talking about. That church has believed since the first century that there are no longer apostles since the 12 that passed away. The word apostle, what does it refer to here in 1 Peter? Here's a good explanation. It was these 12 apostles Luke chapter 6 verse 13 tells us who those 12 were. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from among them 12 whom he named apostles. Jesus named the apostles. He said, you will be my apostles. You will be my envoys. They were the first messengers of the gospel after the death and resurrection of Christ. It was these 12 apostles who were the foundation of the church, which with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. That's the apostles that Peter is referring to in 1 Peter chapter 1. Got questions again, makes the following statement about the apostles, and I really appreciated what they said. This specific type of apostle is not present in the church today. The qualifications of this type of apostle were, one, to have been a witness of the resurrected Christ. Now, some of us are getting older and older as the years go by, right? But none of us are so old that we were around when Jesus was crucified and risen from the dead. So that pretty much rules out everybody that's alive today as far as being an apostle, right? That proof is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, where the apostle Paul says, I have seen the risen Christ. That, that helps bolster my claim of being an apostle. The second proof that was required was that they had to explicitly be chosen by the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 9 verse 15. And thirdly, they had to have the ability to perform signs and wonders. Acts chapter 2 verse 43. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 12. Those signs and wonders we don't believe are being performed today any longer either. 
okay? Um, the responsibility of the 12 apostles laying the foundation of the church would also argue for their uniqueness. We are 2,000 plus years into the building of the church. We're not working on the foundation anymore. The foundation was completed, and we are building on that foundation that was laid by those apostles. One last thing that might help in this discussion of whether or not apostles are for today There are some today who are seeking to restore the position of the apostle in the church, okay? You need to be very weary, very uh, cautious about people who say that they want to restore or claim to be apostles today. It's a dangerous movement, and those who claim the office of apostle are seeking authority equal to or at least rivaling the authority of the original 12 apostles, There is no biblical evidence, none whatsoever, that would support such an understanding of the role of an apostle for today. This would fit, these people who claim that would fit into the New Testament warning against false apostles. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, be on guard, be wary, use the scriptures as your authority. It's clear to see conservative scholars who have held to the authority of Scripture down through the ages would agree that the office of apostle is no longer for today. Those who choose to describe themselves in a term with, as an apostle today, they cause confusion. They cause harm. We, and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm harboring on this a little bit because we spent so much time in South Africa and we had the old apostolic and the new apostolic and there was, they talked about apostolic succession and all that kind of stuff. It's all, it's all not true. It's not biblically founded. And we have some of those groups right here in America as well. So we have to be so very careful that the teachings of our uh, whoever we listen to, whoever we watch, they follow the pages of Scripture. Well, let's ask this question now. How did Peter rank among the apostles? His name is always listed first. So when you go to the store and you buy something, if you're an ingredient checker, okay, you turn it over. This one's easy because it says water. Only one ingredient, Water. But if you have something else, I could walk down and get the grape juice bottle. Um, I'm not sure the grape juice would be the first thing listed as an ingredient there. Okay? Um, but when you read the ingredients, usually, well, always, the first thing is listed is the most, the, the thing that has, is the most in that product. Okay? So when you're listed first, you're the, you're the top you're at the very top. You're, you're the most important ingredient. You're the most important one. Peter was always listed first in the listings of the apostles. That would indicate that he was the leader of the apostles. Now, he didn't necessarily rank himself there, but it appears that that was a calling by God. So when these, even, you need to understand this too, and I'm sure you know it. The, even the listings in the Bible are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit lists Peter first, it tells us that the Holy Spirit places him first as leader among the apostles. So that was a calling of God in Peter's life. He was also considered to be the apostle to the Jews. We mentioned that in the introduction. Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Paul wrote about him and about Peter in their callings. 
Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. But on the contrary, when they saw the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, Paul, as the gospel for the circumcised was committed to Peter, for he who effectively worked in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. So Peter's calling was primarily to take the gospel to the Jewish people. And Paul's calling primarily was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So now that we know who Peter is, let's talk about who received the writings from the apostle Peter. Peter calls them pilgrims of the dispersion. I can't help, but every time I read that that pilgrims of the dispersion, there was a certain actor that came to mind. Young people probably won't know him, but his name is John Wayne. Howdy, pilgrim. Pilgrims of the dispersion, okay? That's how Peter addressed his readers. We talked about this word pilgrim before. We've we've reminded ourselves that you and I, this world is not our home. As followers of Jesus, we are simply passing through this world. Peter reminds us that while this world is neither our home, and it's, it's also the place that we reside. So even though it's not our home, it's where our residence is. It's it's where we're placed to live out our days, our earthly days at least. We need to be mindful, even though we're residing here on earth, of where our citizenship is. We are citizens and we are representatives of our heavenly home. And we are representatives of the king of heaven, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. When Peter calls them pilgrims, um, he, is, he is talking about people who are maybe arriving at a place for the first time, people that are new to a place where they've never been before. As Americans, we have the opportunity in the historical background of knowing what a pilgrim is, okay? There were those people uh, who settled in a place called Plymouth Rock, They crossed the ocean on a boat that was called the Mayflower. They were the first settlers into what was then termed as the New World. These people left England. Now, believe it or not, they actually left Holland. I don't know if you knew that. But they left England first, went to a place in in Amsterdam, and then they moved to, to another place in Holland and stayed there for 10 years before they actually came to America. And why were they leaving the, the, the European area? Because they were seeking religious freedom. They wanted to build a new life and a new world where they could believe the word of God and live out the word of God as they, as they understood the Holy Spirit teaching them the things to do. They came to the new world seeking that freedom, a place to raise their families in accordance with God's standards. We as followers of Jesus Christ, we are not home here in this world. We are here and we are also seeking to raise our families in a way that is in accordance with God's word, in a way that honors him, in a way that shows people that we are followers of the one true, kid, the one true God. When our kids were little and they would go off to a friend's house, you know what we would tell them? Or they would go off to camp, we would tell them, remember who you're representing. They were representing our family And then they were representing as well our great God. So live life as though you are representing the one true God. When you go off, you start your own life, you do your own thing. Remember, 
You are going off to represent the one true God. You may change locations uh, on this earthly planet, but your home is still heaven. It doesn't matter where you go. Like we went all the way to South Africa. The Ramavus go to France. Doesn't matter. A lot of people have left New York to go to Virginia and West Virginia and Florida and, and places down south. A Tennessee, I don't think they want to be there right now. But anyway, that's where they are. When you go someplace, you may change your earthly residence, but you do not change your heavenly citizenship. As you start off life in those new places, remember, you don't just represent your family, but you represent your creator. You represent God. Pilgrims of the dispersion, Peter said. This term, uh, when used in its most technical sense and with the definite article, as in John chapter 7 and James chapter 1, it's a reference to the Jews that were scattered during the Babylonian and Assyrian empires and even down through history when the Jews are scattered. They're still scattered, by the way, all over the world. When it's used in that technical sense with the right definite article, it means those people who are scattered abroad. However, in, the, in this book here, 1 Peter chapter 1, the definite article is not there. So who is Peter talking about? He's not necessarily talking to Jews. I believe he's talking about Christians who are about ready to or are already experiencing some severe persecution. Those brothers and sisters in Christ who have been scattered abroad, who have been forced to new places and new locations and new ways of life. You're not in places where you are familiar. But remember this, you are citizens of heaven. An event, the the, the people that were scattered in this early New Testament church were people that really didn't want to move out. They needed some prompting. They were quite happy to remain in Jerusalem and and stay with their huddled up body of believers. But God allowed persecution to come their way. An event that they didn't really appreciate, but as God allowed that persecution to spread and the Christians began to disperse, dispersion, the people of the dispersion, as they began to move out into other places around the known world, they took with them the word of God. They took with them the gospel of Jesus Christ and they began spreading the gospel. They began telling people about the relationship they had with God through Jesus Christ. So it's amazing how God uses things in this world that we might not like at the time to further the gospel, to further the spread of the good news that brings people into a right relationship with him. These that have been been scattered abroad were not in a place that they would call home. But they were strangers and they were aliens. They didn't fit in to the place they were forced to call home. Share an incident with you. One time we came back to America after being in South Africa. And we didn't have McDonald's for a long time in South Africa. We came back and we were going to get breakfast at McDonald's. And here's one thing that was true about us when we got home after being in, in Africa for many years we'd go to a a restaurant or a fast food place and we'd stare at the menu board because it changed from four years ago when we were here last. And one time we were staring, it was breakfast time and we were trying to figure out what these things called McGriddles were. 
What in the world? We've never seen that. We've never heard of that. So we're asking questions. There's a line starting to form behind us. And so, oh, we're sorry. You can go ahead of us. But we felt out of place. We didn't feel at home. We didn't understand all the nuances of what had changed since we were last in America. As Christians, we often don't understand what's going on in the world around us. That's not an excuse. We need to be update. We need to be uh, current. We need to be uh, relevant in our world. But it's sometimes not easy. And so as we try to figure out how God would have us handle a situation, uh, people might think, what are you doing? Why are you taking so long? Why are you so slow about it? Well, Peter wants his readers to understand that we are not to get comfortable in this world. We are strangers. We are aliens. We call this place home, but only temporarily. This letter was to have a reach that was far and wide. It was a letter that was to be read by one church and passed on to another. And they didn't have the technologies that we have today. I mean, if I have something that I want to give to somebody else, I will often uh, pull out my phone and go to the app that's called Scannable. And, And I will open up that app, and I will scan the document. Now it's in my phone. It automatically goes to my computer. I can then pass that piece of paper on to somebody else so they can have it and do what they need to do with it. They didn't have that technology in those days. So, excuse me, perhaps somebody got the letter from Peter and quickly started copying it, writing it down, and then they would pass it on to the next church. I mean, there were several churches that were mentioned there, all over Asia Minor, Churches that were scattered, and we'll get to that in a moment. And so uh, these aliens copied down. Let me just remind you that aliens is not always about people from outer space, okay? Um, It's the last time I get to pick on him while he's in the service. So uh, I can tell you without a doubt that my son is an alien. And you say, well, we knew he was strange, but uh, it actually says so on his birth certificate because he was born in South Africa, and, and at the very top, they wrote on it, alien. So now, when, when he has to show his birth certificate, everybody knows. He has a consular report of birth abroad, which is an American document, but that's not his birth certificate. His birth certificate is a South African document, and on the top of it, it says, alien. What does that mean? Well, he's, his, his citizenship was not in South Africa, it was in America. So Peter, when he refers to aliens, he's talking about people whose citizenship is not on earth, but it is in heaven. This letter was read far and wide to all the churches in Asia Minor. You know, here's an interesting thought as I was studying this. I realized that it was written to the same geographical area of those churches that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Asia Minor, what we would call now Turkey, okay? That's where these churches were gathered and were established, MacArthur makes the following observation about these pilgrims, if you will. The apostle wanted those believers to remember that in the midst of potentially great suffering and hardship, they were still the chosen of God, and that as such they should face persecution in triumphant hope. Triumphant hope. We are moving on in hope, no matter what's going on in our world. So that's the who. Now let's talk for a moment about the what. Since we know the who is, it's time to consider the next question. And the next question logically would be who, what? Okay, what? Um, What were these people? What is true about these people? 
This statement by Peter should explain a lot. It really helps us understand what life was like for them and what life is like for a person who claims the name of Jesus Christ. Let me start by saying it's not really about man, the what that we're going to talk about. It's really all about our great God. Here's what Peter says about them. He says that they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he tells them what he desires for them, and that's grace and peace, that it would be multiplied to them. So let's talk about this. What are the children that, or what are the people that Peter is writing to? Other than children of God, he describes them this way, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, can I just, in case you're somebody who doesn't like that word elect, can I just tell you that it's in the Bible? It's a word that the Holy Spirit chose to use, no pun intended, okay? But as we think about that word elect, it is a teaching from the pages of Scripture. So this morning, we're going to talk about what that means. This is a church here, Calvary Baptist Church of Preble, that has long held to that doctrine, okay? And so as we work our way through it, if you don't understand what we're talking about, hopefully by the end we're of, the, of the sermon today, you will. Peter's embarking here on a very controversial subject, a subject that has caused division in the church for centuries, Okay? People don't like the word elect. And the thing is, there's really no reason that it should cause such controversy or such division. Here's the thing. As I said, it's in the Bible, so it must be true. It must be practiced. It makes me think of that little magnet I've told you about before on my grandmother's refrigerator. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Now, the emphasis there is mostly on the fact that God said it. If God said it, I should believe it, and there should be no more further discussion about it unless it's simply to clarify and help people come to an understanding. The emphasis is on the fact God said it, so if God said it, we need to understand what he's saying, and we need to make it a practice in our lives. Now, understand this also. When we talk about election, election is not something that's new to the New Testament or new to the church age. The word elect, it simply means to be chosen, or to choose. The Old Testament speaks often about God's choosing. For example, God chose Abram and changed his name to Abraham. God chose Jacob over Esau. In fact, in the book of Malachi, we read, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, that's a whole other conversation to get into. Um, God doesn't hate anybody, but the love that he demonstrated towards Jacob compared to the love that he demonstrated toward Esau may have caused people to think, oh, you don't like him very much, do you? Okay? There was such an intense love and a calling out of Jacob, chosen by God. It is clear that God chose the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, Moses wrote, For you are a holy people, he's talking to Israel, to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Sounds a little bit like what Peter wrote in in, in chapter 2 where he says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Part of the confusion with election lies in the question that people ask like, 
Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Can I tell you that's the wrong question? Well, what do you mean, Pastor? What's the wrong, if that's the wrong question, what's the right question? The right question is, why did God choose either one of them? Well, you know what the answer is? Because if he didn't choose either one of them, neither would have been obedient to him. It's the same today. When we talk about the fact that God chose some from among condemned sinners to be the recipient of his great grace and everlasting life, why did God choose some? Well, because if he didn't choose some, then none would come. The Bible's very clear. There's none that seeketh after God. There's none that doeth good. We've all gone our own way. We are all sheep uh, led astray. So it's important to understand that God didn't choose some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. That's, that's an often misunderstood understanding of God choosing. Can, can I tell you this, and you know it, every person who is born into this world is born on their way to hell. Harsh reality, but it's true. So God chooses from among everyone who is on their way to hell, some to go to heaven. And if he doesn't choose, all go to hell. That's just the way it is. Abram was pretty content in Ur of the Chaldees before God chose him. He was, he was okay with his life. Didn't really, I mean, he was happy. And then God broke into his life. And, and sent him to a place he did not know. He promised him promises that he never even dreamed of, never even thought of. His wildest imagination, he never thought he would be the father of many nations. But God chose him for that. And he chose him in eternity past. Not based on anything that Abram did. He simply chose him to the recipient of his great grace. Hebrews 11 makes it clear that Abram Abram responded in faith. He went to the place that God called him. Jacob certainly would not have followed God had God not chosen him. I mean, he had a hard time following God even though God did choose him, sometimes like us. But God chose Jacob and didn't choose Esau. The bottom line in election is this. If God didn't call, then none would come. And here's another thought. If God calls you, you will come. You will come. There's no no doubting. Why? Because he's sovereign. If he chooses you and you don't come, then he can't be sovereign. Do you understand the implications of this doctrine? They're great implications. If If you choose not to believe what Scripture teaches about them, then it really changes who God is. God is God. God chooses. God chose, and when he chose, you come. There's such a thing that we call irresistible grace, and we're not getting into the whole tulip discussion this morning, okay? Uh, whether, whether that's something you agree with or don't agree with, but let's call it the effectual call of God. And if God calls you, you will come. Peter makes it clear that this choosing was not based on man's merit, It was based on the foreknowledge of God. There's another word that sometimes people don't like to talk about. Foreknowledge. This is another topic that confuses people. What does foreknowledge mean? Let me say this first. Foreknowledge is not, okay, 
is not God looking into the future, seeing who would respond to his offer of salvation and calling them because he knew how they would respond. That's not foreknowledge. Some people define foreknowledge that way. That is not foreknowledge. The biblical understanding of foreknowledge is this. Let me just, why is that not foreknowledge? Because that makes man the final authority on somebody's salvation. We are not. God is, okay? As I was preparing this message, I found my doctrinal statement from my ordination many years ago. In my doctrinal statement, I have a definition for foreknowledge. Let me read it for you. I haven't changed, okay? It's, I believe the same thing today that I believed then. Um, it says this, God looking down through the corridor of time and entering into a loving relationship with those he, choo- he chose to be the special objects of his divine love and care. Not for any merit on my part, because you know what? There isn't any. I have no merit. I don't think I'm a particularly terrible person, but I still don't have any merit before God. My merit means nothing to the foreknowledge of God. has no bearing on it at all whatsoever. God looked down through the corridor time. He chose me. I don't know why he chose me. It's not up to me. I'm just glad he did. Okay? He chose me to be an object of his divine and loving care. So that's the person behind our election. The person behind our election is none other than God himself. If you have a problem with it, you've got to talk to him. We also see the power in our sanctification comes through election. The fact that God is at the heart of all aspects of our salvation is becoming more and more clear as Peter unfolds this passage of Scripture. God the Father is the one who does the choosing. And Peter now explains the work of the Spirit in our salvation. The phrase, in sanctification of the Spirit. It reminds us that we were placed into the body of Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. I didn't place myself in the body. The Holy Spirit placed me in the body. We've talked about sanctification before and how there are three aspects of sanctification. There is positional sanctification. There is progressive sanctification. And then there's perfect sanctification. Peter here is talking about our positional sanctification where we are placed into the body of Christ. When a person accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, at that moment, a person is then placed into the body of Christ of Christ. The Holy Spirit places the new believer into that position. I really like the way MacArthur summarizes the work of sanctification at salvation. He says, the sanctifying work encompasses all that the Spirit produces in salvation, starting with faith, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, moving on to repentance in Acts chapter 11, verses 15 through 18, and then regeneration in Titus 3, 5, and then finally adoption in Romans 8, verses 16 and 17. Thus, Election, the plan of God, becomes a reality in the life of the believer through salvation, the work of God, which the Holy Spirit carries out. None of us can do it on behalf of another. I can't redeem you. No matter how much money is in my bank account, I can't go to God and say, God, I want to pay for so-and-so to be able to go to heaven. We're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's, that's what brought about our redemption. We must understand the power of our sanctification 
is ours because God chose us. We see also the proof of election when Peter uses that term for obedience. Peter wants his readers to know that when the Spirit brings people to Christ, he also prompts them to obedience to the things of the Lord. This is great freedom that you and I have as a result of being chosen by God for salvation. Remember, we learned in our study in Hebrews a couple of years ago, in Hebrews chapter 2, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he, Jesus, might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil. The devil, he, he, Jesus, delivers all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We were enslaved to sin, but through the electing process of God and through the saving knowledge, the saving relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ, we no longer are enslaved to sin. We have the freedom to do right. We have the freedom to be obedient. We didn't have that freedom to live consistent, obedient lives prior to salvation. Before Christ laid down his life on the cross of Calvary, we were enslaved to sin. The fruit of obedience is proof that you and I are children of God. If somebody says they're a believer and they continue to live in sin, well, Paul says, what shall I say? Shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? No! And in no way! You can't do that as a child of God. You must begin to demonstrate obedience. The fruit of obedience is proof that one has become a child of God. What does obedience look like for the child of God? Well, I think in many ways, obedience starts when we're baptized. When we're saying, okay, God, I want to follow your command. It's one of the first commands that God has for new believers. Go into all the world, make disciples. Teach them the good news so that they can have a relationship with me. And then what are they supposed to do? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. When people, as we studied the New Testament, came to know Jesus as their Savior, what was the next thing they did? They got baptized, and they began a life of obedience to the things of God. I've heard people tell, in fact, a guy who worked with us in our first church plant in South Africa, he said, I I really was not obedient to God until I got baptized. And then God showed and pressed upon me the need to be obedient in that, and then I began to be obedient in other things. God gave him victory over different things in his life. Baptism, like salvation, is a choice that you must make. That's why we believe in believer's baptism. When you're a little baby and you're in your mom and dad's arms and they take you up front and and somebody sprinkles water on you, that is not baptism. It's not what the Bible describes as baptism. So if that's what you consider uh, having done to be baptized, you still need to be baptized. You still must make a choice to say, okay, God, I want to follow you. I want to be obedient. I want to be immersed in water to identify with Jesus Christ's baptism. And I want to go forward serving you, living for you, honoring you with my life. It's a life of obedience. Here's the wonderful thing about obedience. One act of obedience often leads to another act of obedience, and so on, and so on, and so on. We, we begin to practice obedience, and it becomes a way of life for the child of God. 
Well, let's move on. The clock, wow, it's already, I, I, first time I looked at the clock. Sorry, we're a, little bit, we're a little bit over. We only got a couple more points to go here. The protection of election. Here's a great blessing that flows out of this truth that we find here in First Peter this morning. Remember, election is not simply something that a, that a particular division or denomination of Christendom teaches. It's a truth very clearly outlined for us in the pages of Scripture. It really is not open for debate. It's really not. It's something that God says, this is what it is. If you, if you choose not to believe it, then you're choosing to deny some great truths in the pages of Scripture. But here's this. Election actually guarantees, Scott, you might appreciate this in the conversation you've been having online. Election actually guarantees the believer's security in Jesus. You can see it in the picture that Peter paints here with the phrase, Sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. You see, this takes us back to the idea in the Old Testament, the sacrificial picture. When an animal was sacrificed, you know what they did with the blood? The priest would sacrifice the animal, and then he would sprinkle the blood on the altar. You know what? That blood was never cleaned off. It stayed there forever. If you could find an altar that was used in Old Testament sacrifices you would, and you did a DNA test on it, you'd still find blood on it because the blood doesn't go anywhere. When you and I trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are eternally secure. God doesn't choose us to be a follower of his to be saved only for us to fall away from that. Why would he choose us if we were going to fall away from it? What bearing, what good is his choosing then if we can lose that salvation? Also, here's another picture from the Old Testament. The, the blood of the animal that was shed was a picture of the permanence of the covenant relationship that existed between God and his people. I think to discount the security of the believer's salvation, hold on to your seats here, is to lessen the value of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's pretty serious. If a person doubts the security of the believer's salvation, they're saying that the the bloodshed of Jesus Christ wasn't sufficient to keep them saved for all time and into eternity. Moses sprinkled the people with the blood of Jesus of, with the blood of the animal sacrifices when he instituted the old covenant. Why? To remind the people of the permanence of that covenant. They were in a covenant relationship and they were not to break it. Jesus gives us some better understanding of this idea as well. In John chapter 6, verse 37 through 40, he says, All that the Father has given me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. What makes it possible? The blood of Jesus Christ. Those God chose to be the recipients of the working of the blood of Jesus Christ will never lose their salvation. It it gives us great hope that we are protected in the beloved. Well, let's close with this thought. The provision of election. 
Because of the truths of election that Peter has presented, he then tells the persecuted believers that he wishes for them grace and peace. (laughs) I talked to somebody earlier this week who had surgery. And I asked them, because my wife had a similar surgery, I asked them, "Are are you icing and are you elevating? And the response was, I don't like it when people ask me if I'm doing those things. That makes me think that they think I'm stupid. Just asking. Sometimes we forget to do the things that we need to do. Okay? No implication at all, but just asking. Okay? So you and I understand this. Peter wishes grace and truth for those who are being persecuted. That's like saying, hey, in your persecution, do you experience the grace of God? (sighs) Now that you stop and make me think about it, I guess I am. I guess I am. Understand this, that this grace that Peter is talking about is the grace of God. And when you experience the grace of God, you know what the natural outflow of the grace of God is? The peace of God. If you know the grace of God and have experienced that, you should have the peace of God in your life. You see, this was, this is, it's, it's a wish for Peter, for the people of, uh, that he's writing to, but it's not a pie-in-the-sky kind of a wish. It's a wish that is based on the truths of God's very nature and his very character. It's, it's something that is truly available to the child of God, this grace and peace. Peter wants the recipients of this letter to fully experience God's grace and God's peace to an extent that is beyond what their imagination might be at the moment. He wants them to know that God wants to and is willing to pour out his great grace on these people. The grace of God is a a facet of the Christian life that you and I take great comfort in. Just think about it this way. How many songs have been written that talk about the grace of God. In the early 1900s, hymn writer Julia Johnston penned these words. I love them. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe, all who are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? But listen to that. Marvelous, matchless, infinite grace. Whew. That's a great way to describe the grace of God. Chris Tomlin, a more modern songwriter, started with the words, those amazing words of John Newton's hymn, and he added to that hymn these words. Amazing grace, my chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. Phil Wickham if you listen to Christian radio, sings these words of worship. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love that you would take my place, that you would bear my cross. You laid down your life that I would be set free. O 